how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Habakkuk. Well, 20 years after Zephaniah, we come to another prophet, Habakkuk. The name means somebody who embraces or hugs, uh, or to put it in colloquial language, clinger. We'll call him clinger, Habakkuk the clinger. He's a man who clung to God, who dared to argue with God, who insisted on getting answers from God, but didn't like the answers when he got them. Now, we're dealing with very basic important issues again, the contradiction between facts and faith. And Sometimes what we believe doesn't look like uh, the truth because the facts seem to be against us. In particular, again, if God is good and all-powerful, why do the innocent suffer and the guilty not suffer? Why doesn't God act more quickly? Why doesn't he do something about the mess that the world is in? And many people wrestle with these issues, but they either wrestle with these issues by themselves and keep just churning it over in their mind, or they wrestle with other people and argue with other people about it, but the best way when you've got a big problem is to wrestle with God and to cling to him until he gives you an answer. And that's what Habakkuk did. So his boldness and his sheer honesty come through in this little prophecy. I feel very warm towards Habakkuk as he argues with God. Now this little prophet, unlike Zephaniah, is full of quotable quotes. With Zephaniah, I don't think you could have given me a verse apart from that chorus about he will joy over thee with singing, but uh, it's very different with Habakkuk. For example, I'm sure you've heard people pray, O Lord, you are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. Have you heard that phrase? That's straight out of Habakkuk, though actually it's not what God said, it's what Habakkuk said, and he may not have been right, as we'll see. But other words that God did say, we we quote freely, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You must have heard that one. Or another one, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Or in wrath remember mercy. Sure you've heard that one. And what about though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, yet will I rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God my Saviour. But I suppose the most famous verse from Habakkuk that has become the Magna Carta of Protestantism since the Reformation is, the just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther just made that uh, one verse from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 ring around northern Europe and it became the Marseillaise of the Reformation. But I have to say, they misunderstood it and misinterpreted it and we shall have to look very carefully at what it actually says and what it really means. Well now, the shape or structure of Habakkuk, again, we'll take a look at that, and clearly it divides into two parts. Chapters 1 and 2 belong together and are one half and the other half of the prophecy is in chapter 3. And the contrast between the first and second sections is enormous. 
in the first section, he's wrestling with God. There's a battle going on. In the second section, he's resting in God and he's at peace. In the first session, section, Habakkuk is miserable. In the second, he's happy again. In the first, he's shouting at God, literally. In the second, he's singing to God. In the first, he's praying, but in the second, he's praising. In the first, he's impatient. God, why? Why aren't you doing that? In the second, he's patient. He says, I will wait for the Lord. The first, he's asking for justice. God, where's your justice? But in the second half, he says, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. In the first, he's down in the dumps, but in the second, he's on a high. So what's happened to Habakkuk? Something pretty big must have happened in between. He's a changed man. So what has changed him? Well, we'll have to go into the... Uh, prophecy in detail to find out what's changed him. So let's look in greater detail. I've labelled the first section complaining prayer, and if ever a man complained to God, it's Habakkuk. And he was honest about his complaints, and he told God exactly what he was thinking. Once again, sheer honesty in prayer. At first he complained that God was doing too little. And then he complained that God was doing too much. You know, some folks you can't please, can you? Some folks are never happy with the way God does things. And he switches even in the argument from God you're not doing enough to God that's too much. You know, it's amazing how we come to God and we want him just to fit in with what we think he should be doing. That was Habakkuk's real problem. But the second section I've called composed praise because it is actually a song and he, it says, set this to music and particularly he wanted stringed instruments to accompany it and uh, we're going to sing it and we'll be singing it to Beethoven's Ode to Joy from his Ninth Symphony and there's a long story behind that too. But uh, that's the outline. Now let's get to grips with this which is the heart of his uh, prophecy. He believed in what I call interrogatory prayer. I wonder if you engage in that. It's a very important style of prayer. I find it most helpful. You've heard of intercessory prayer. That's when you ask God for things. But interrogatory prayer is when you ask God questions. And very often I find that he speaks to me if I ask him a question. I don't try and get the answer. I just ask him a question. And if something comes into my mind, especially if it's very unexpected and not what I would have thought of. I'm impressed and I believe it's God and nine times out of ten it is. Uh, when our dear daughter died, we only found out after she died how much she'd been doing for the Lord. We were astonished and she never talked about it but she'd been in regular touch with missionaries in China and in Africa and Haiti and all over the place and she was worship leader in the church. The whole church mourned her. And uh, I was talking to the Lord about it and I said, Lord, I'm, I'm very proud of our daughter, but how do you feel about her? What's your opinion? And immediately into my mind came the words, she is one of my successors. So that's what I preached on at her funeral. Are you one of the Lord's successors or one of his failures? He's had a lot of failures ever since Judas Iscariot. 
Well, now, ask him questions. Just ask him how he feels. If you've never heard from the Lord in your life, then try asking him this question. Lord, is there anything in my life that you don't like? If you really want to hear from God, just ask him that question. When I told one lady that, she said, I know what it'll be. And I said, no, you don't. It might be something quite different. You go and ask him. Well, she did, and the next Sunday she said, it was. <laughs> All right. Habakkuk asked God questions. Now, bear in mind that Habakkuk is 20 years after Zephaniah, and Josiah didn't achieve what he hoped to achieve with his reform, and then he got himself killed at Megiddo in 608 BC. And after him came a very worldly, selfish, indulgent king called Jehoiakim. And the law became impotent. Justice became perverted. There was bribery and corruption. And lawlessness and oppression filled the streets of Jerusalem, God's city, until it wasn't safe to walk the streets at night alone. Violence filled the city and things were going from bad to worse. And Habakkuk had to watch all this, and he couldn't bear it. And so he came to God. And we need to remember something on the international scene as well. The Assyrians who had taken away the ten tribes were now in decline. They were on the way out. So there was no strong world power now. And therefore, Habakkuk knew that God wouldn't be able to bring the Assyrians to punish Judah because they were a declining power and he could see no change on the political scene. And so it looked as if nothing was happening while Jerusalem went down the drain and got from bad to worse. So that's the background. And so he complained to God, he said, God, how can you stand and do nothing about all this in your holy city? The violence, the bribery, the corruption, the fear. It's horrible and you're doing nothing about it. Why'd you let me look at it all? You opened my eyes but you shut my ears. I can't hear anything from you. And he really let God have an earful like that. He wanted God to reverse the trends and change society and restore law and order. Does that sound familiar? I hear Christians praying for that today. Lord, why don't you reverse the trends in England? Why don't you restore law and order so it'll be safe to walk the streets again? Why don't you change society? Well, Habakkuk said all that to God and then God answered. Now, it's good to argue with God, but I warned you before, you'll never win the argument. And God gave Habakkuk five answers to the question, why are you doing nothing? Why don't the bad people suffer? Why don't the criminals suffer, all the violent people about? Why don't they suffer? And God replied with five statements. One, he said, you are not looking wide enough. Open your eyes a bit wider. Watch. Secondly, God said, you're in for a very big surprise, Habakkuk. Third, God said, I've planned something that will happen in your lifetime. Fourth, God said, I haven't told you what I'm doing because you wouldn't believe it. 
That's a nice little dig. <laughs> and the fifth thing, I've already begun to do something and you've missed it. That's a pretty good answer, isn't it? And that's what God said to Habakkuk, who must have been pretty small. So what are you doing, Lord, that I've missed that I haven't seen? And God said, I am raising up the Babylonians. Now hitherto Babylon was just a little city on the Tigris River. Nobody had really heard of it except Hezekiah. And when you go back to the good king Hezekiah, the biggest mistake Hezekiah made was this. Hezekiah was very, very ill once. That's when uh, God told him he was going to get better and the sign of the 40 minutes, the sundial going back 10 degrees happened. But uh, anyway, what happened? The king of Babylon, which was only a little city at that time, but it had a little king, a little king of a little city, but he sent a get well card to Hezekiah. He sent a message of sympathy, get well soon, and he sent it by the hands of two of his soldiers. And they came to Hezekiah and said, the king of Babylon hopes you'll get well soon and sent this card to put on your mantelpiece. <laughs> and Hezekiah was so thrilled that someone so far away should be interested in his illness that it rather went to his head. He said, while you're here, would you like to see my palace? And he showed them around his palace and he said, and what my treasures are, nothing compared to the treasures next door in the temple. Would you like to see them too? And he showed the guests around the temple and all the treasures of the temple. And Isaiah the prophet came into Hezekiah's palace the next day. Who were those men you showed around? Oh, there were two visitors from far away in a little city called Babylon and the king of Babylon sent me a get well card and I didn't know I was that famous. And Isaiah said, Babylon will take away everything you showed those two men from your palace, from the temple. So even Isaiah saw what was coming, but Habakkuk hadn't seen it because by now Babylon was growing and the king of Babylon was growing more powerful and they would conquer Assyria and they would become the great power in the east on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and Babylon would be the greatest enemy that Jerusalem ever had, so much so that at the end of the book of Revelation you have Babylon and Jerusalem pictured as a filthy prostitute and a pure bride, the two women facing each other at the end. So, and Babylon of course goes back to Babel. It's the same word, that's where the Tower of Babel was built. And this little Babylon that Hezekiah thought was just a tiny little place at the other end of the world, was going to be the great power that would come and punish Jerusalem. That's what I'm doing. I'm bringing the Babylonians and you missed it. All you can see is what's happening in Jerusalem, but lift your eyes up, Habakkuk. Look further. Can't you see what's happening? There's a power rising up in the east and that's my instrument of my boiling over rage against the city and I'm bringing them to deal with it. Now Hezekiah was so shocked, it's almost as if God said, I'm going to bring the North Koreans to punish the South Koreans. That's the kind of shock it would be. Or I'm raising up Nazi Germany to punish England. You see, this is how God deals with nations actually. He raises up another power that deals with a bad power and you can see it again and again in history. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And now Habakkuk argues quite the opposite way. 
He said, that's too much, Lord. That's far too much. He said, I've heard about these Babylonians and already they had a worse reputation than the Assyrians had. The Assyrians were pretty cruel people. The Assyrians invented the most horrible death. They used to sharpen a wooden spike, drive it into the ground, and then take a man by his legs and drive the spike right up through him. And they called it impaling. It's a horrible death. The Assyrians were cruel people, but that was nothing compared to the Babylonians. I've told you already, the Babylonians had a scorched earth policy and that meant that when they conquered a nation, they literally removed every trace of life from the face of the earth, even the trees. They cut down every tree, they slaughtered every animal. When the Babylonians had passed by, there was nothing living left. They were a tough people. And Habakkuk realized that if the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, there'd be nothing left. Nothing. This is the meaning of the words, though the fig tree does not blossom, and there are no grapes on the vine, and there are no sheep or cattle in the pen. That's the meaning of the words. We sing those words or we say them and we have no idea what's behind them, but what's behind them is nothing left living. And he said, God, that, that is too much. If you bring the Babylonians, you realize, Lord, there are still some good people in this city. He didn't say me included, but that's what he meant. And he said, there are some righteous in this city and they're going to die along with the wicked. That's too heavy a punishment, Lord. That'll leave nothing of your people. I'm sorry, but I'm just not having that. That is too much. And in any case, that you're using people who are more wicked than we are to punish us. And that's immoral. That's when he said, and you who are of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. That was an argument Habakkuk was using to try and twist God's arm. It's not a statement of God. That is not true of God. God is not of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. God has to watch iniquity every day. He watches every rape every mugging. We don't have to watch it, but he does. But he's trying to say, God, you couldn't stand by and watch that happen. You're of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. To see the righteous killed as well as the wicked, you couldn't do that. Now, that's Habakkuk's argument. And again, we should be careful about quoting a man's argument as if that's God's speech. Do you, do you follow me? Think it through carefully but it's Habakkuk trying to say, God, you couldn't do that, but God will do it. And so Habakkuk got thoroughly annoyed with God in the second part of the argument. He said, why use worse people than we are to punish bad people? That's immoral. But God has frequently done that and he uses very bad people to punish bad people. Does that sound crazy? Well, read on. And what about the good people? There are some good people in Jerusalem still and you know what the Babylonians will do. They don't say who's good and who's bad, they just kill the lot. And so he's, he went up to the watchtower on the wall and he sat there, a bit like Jonah after Nineveh, and he sat there and he said, I'm just going to watch to see if you do it. <laughs> and he, he sat up there on his watchtower to see if the Babylonians would come. He's almost saying, I dare you to bring them, Lord. 
very human Habakkuk, but he's really, he's arguing with God. And God said, Habakkuk, you're doing no good, good sitting up there. Go down into the street and write these things on the wall so that people running past can read it. You should be warning them, not sitting up here to see what I do. You should be telling people what I'm going to do. So go down there and write it up on a hoarding that he who runs may read. And you see, when God reveals to us what he's going to do, he does so so that we can tell people to get ready, not so that we can sit and wait to see if he does it. That's an important point. Some people loved studying prophecy and the end times and what's going to happen just to be in the know. But the only point of studying the book of Revelation is to get people ready and to tell them what's coming. Habakkuk, get down off your watchtower. Go and write it up in the streets. There are two translations of that verse. It's either that he who runs may read or that he who reads may run. <laughs> I don't know which the translation should be. It could be either in the Hebrew, but either way makes sense, doesn't it? But you should be getting people ready, not waiting to see if I do it. And then God made that statement which became the most famous verse of Habakkuk's, the just shall live by faith. Now what does it mean? It does not mean what Protestants in the Reformation made it mean. Let's look at it in context. Habakkuk is saying the Babylonians will kill the righteous as well as the wicked. And God is saying, no, I will protect the righteous. They will survive provided they remain faithful to me. That's the meaning of the just shall live by faith. It is the good people in Jerusalem will survive by keeping faith with me. And those who do, now of course when the Babylonians came that would be a time when many might lose faith. They would just say, where's God? He's let us down. But he said, the people who go on believing in me, who go on trusting me, will survive that coming judgment. So you don't need to worry, I'm a just God. And I promise you, Habakkuk, the good people will survive if they remain faithful to me when the worst happens. Now that's the meaning, the real meaning of that verse. Because faith, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek languages, is the same as faithfulness. Now I cannot underline this more strongly. I've already hinted this from the book of Numbers and from Zephaniah. But the fact is that it is faithfulness that saves. It is to go on believing. It is to keep faith. That's what saves you. Not to have faith once, then get your ticket to heaven, but to remain faithful, to go on believing, even when the Babylonians come, even when the, the whole world caves in, even when everything goes wrong, then to say, I still trust him, then you are a survivor, you are saved. Do you see what the meaning is? You see, the word faith as a noun only occurs three times in the Old Testament. Once here, once it occurs uh, when it talks about faithfulness in marriage. Faith in marriage is to stay together till death do you part. That's what faith is in marriage. It's to stick it out. 
You know that couple interviewed on television on the 70th wedding anniversary? The interviewer said to the old boy, in all the 70 years did you ever consider divorce? He said, divorce never, murder often. <laughs> and you know, everybody, everybody was so happy because they'd had their battles, they'd had their differences, but they were still together. That's faith. And then faith is also applied to Moses when he prayed and his arms were held up by Aaron and Hur. He went on praying until the battle was won. Faith and faithfulness are exactly the same thing, the same word in Hebrew and in Greek. Therefore, when you read faith, you must read faithful as well. Do you understand what I'm saying? You cannot believe in Jesus unless you go on believing in him. Believing in him once isn't faith. Faith is going on believing in him whatever happens. It is faithfulness. It's keeping faith. I like that phrase, keeping faith with someone. It is keeping faith with the Lord that saves the righteous. See? And whatever happens in the future, right up to and including the day of judgment, those who keep faith with the Lord will be saved. Which is why in all three Gospels it says, he that endures to the end shall be saved. It's those who go on believing. Now the interesting thing is, you see, here in Habakkuk, he is told the good people will survive the Babylonian judgment by keeping faith with me. And that verse is used in the New Testament by three different writers and always it refers to continuing faithfully. For example, Paul says in Romans 1:16 and onwards, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who goes on believing. For it is faith from beginning to end, or literally he says it is from faith to faith, even as it is written, the just shall live by faith, quoting Habakkuk. In other words, it begins with faith and it ends with faith. Salvation is by going on believing. It's by faithfulness. It's by the faith that holds on, whatever happens. Or take Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says, We are not among those who shrink back and are lost in perdition, but we are among those who go on believing and are saved. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. There it is again. See? And always when that's quoted in the New Testament, the emphasis is on going on believing, faith from beginning to end, not shrinking back, but going on trusting. That's a very important point because unfortunately this text has now been used to suggest that if a person has believed for just one minute in their life, they're safe. That's a gross misuse of the text the just shall live by keeping faith with the Lord. And I emphasize that very strongly because I'm afraid there is a lot of complacency among Christians and they use an unscriptural phrase to support their views, once saved, always saved. I find that a horrible phrase. It's those who keep faith with the Lord who survive all the worst that happens. Keep on believing and you will survive. The righteous will survive by keeping faith. Forgive me for spending a lot of time on that, but it's a very important point. 
especially since it's been picked up and made the Magna Carta of the Protestant Reformation. The just shall live by going on believing. It's the best translation. And God says, not only will the good survive by keeping faith, but the Babylonians' judgment will come. God will deal with them and their turn will come. And now in the second half of chapter 2, there is a series of woes. Now, the word woe in Scripture is a curse. Don't ever use it. I, I tremble when I hear a parent say to a child, woe betide you if you do that again. That's cursing the child. And when Jesus said, woe, my, that was terrible. Do you know that he said woe as often as he said blessed? Blessed are you poor, woe to you rich. Blessed are those who mourn, woe to you who laugh now. haven't heard that preached lately. But he said, woe. He said, woe, woe. And you know, of all the towns around the Sea of Galilee, there were 250,000 people living on the shores of Galilee in Jesus' day, in five major towns. And Jesus said, woe to four of them. He said, woe to you, Capernaum, woe to you, Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin. But he didn't say woe to one of them called Tiberius. And if you go to Galilee today, you'll have to stay in Tiberius. It's the only town there is. Every other town that Jesus said woe to has disappeared off the face of the earth. They can't even find some of them now. You can see the ruins of Capernaum and a stone or two from Chorazin, but woe, woe. The book of Revelation has woes in it. Now, Zephaniah, sorry, Habakkuk now says, Woe to you Babylonians! Your day will come. God will use you to punish us, but woe to you! And he lists five things for which God will punish them. Injustice, stealing and plundering and looting, imperialism, taking over dictatorship of other peoples, inhumanity, their bloodshed, their slave labor to build Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world, their intemperance, they often got drunk, they were alcoholics, they were, and they did terrible things when they were in a drunken orgy. Their destruction of animals and even trees. Do you know that when Israel went to war, God forbade them to cut down a single tree unless they needed it for the war? He said, you're not to fight the trees, they belong to me. Interesting, when I read about the Vietnam War, and how they destroyed the forests with chemicals. I thought, God doesn't approve of that. You're not fighting trees, but the Babylonians did. And above all, their idolatry, their worship of lifeless wood and stone and metal idols. And for these five things, injustice, imperialism, inhumanity, intemperance, and idolatry, God said, whoa! And Habakkuk announced the doom of Babylon even before she reached her power. Interesting, isn't it? So that's how God answered his argument. The good will survive and the worst will suffer. And then comes that lovely phrase, let all the earth keep silence before God. That's one in the eye for Habakkuk. But God's saying, shut up. <laughs> and when he shut up, he saw the light. <laughs> and that's what changed him. He stopped arguing with God and he was quiet and he thought about what God had said and his whole mood changed and he began to sing. That's where we come to chapter 3. It's the result of his meditation. 
It's an amazing song which he composed in his own mind with his own hand and he gave musical uh, instructions, shigioneth, got to be sung, <coughs> stringed instruments. The whole change in his thinking, his argument was based on a mind that was concentrated on the present, but now he looks back into the past and sees that God did always intervene and he looks into the future and says, he will intervene again and I'm prepared to wait. Now I'm going to read the version that I've written. I've tried to put chapter 3 into modern verse so that it can be sung today. Let me just read it uh, through for you. Uh, it's rather a long song but then the chapter's a long chapter. But this is how it goes. You've got a copy in front of you, some of you, but you listen to me reading it. Lord, your fame has gone before you from the time your arm was bared. Tales of deeds so overwhelming even listening makes me scared. Now today, O Lord, repeat them. Prove that you are still the same, but in wrath remember mercy for the honour of your name. Look, this holy God descending spreads the sky with glorious rays, trailing from his hand of power. Earth is filled with sounds of praise, but the guilty nations tremble, plague and pestilence their fears. Even ancient mountains crumble when the infinite appears. Are you angry with the rivers? Is your wrath upon the streams? Do you rage against the ocean with your horse and chariot teams? Writhing hills and flooded valleys, sun and moon stand still in fear at the glint of flying arrows, lightning of your flashing spear. Striding through the earth in vengeance, threshing nations till it's done, all to save your chosen people, res rescue your anointed one. You have crushed their wicked leader stripped him bare and split his head, so his storming, gloating warriors scatter to the wind instead. Having heard the final outcome, knowing all and not just part, great emotion grips my body, quivering lips and pounding heart, trembling legs give way beneath me, yet with patience will I wait when the foe invades my country certain of his dreadful fate. Though the fig tree does not blossom and the vine is void of grapes, though the olive trees are barren and the fields produce no crops, though no lambs are in the sheepfold and no cattle in the stall, yet will I enjoy my Saviour, glad that God is all in all. Joyfully I face the future with my failing strength restored and my angry questions answered by this marvellous sovereign Lord. See, my heart and feet are leaping like a deer upon the heights. Set my words to holy music, voices and stringed instruments. Well, perhaps that conveys to you something of the heart of this man. What a change! Arguing with God, restless, wrestling with God, and now he's at peace and he's going to wait for what God is going to do. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.